Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. Since emerging in the Italian Renaissance, the sonnet has become one of the most popular of poetic forms, employed by writers from around the world. And in the United States, among African-American writers, the sonnet has taken on particular importance. For writers from Phyllis Wheatley in the Revolutionary Period to the present day in the work of poets like Natasha Trethway and Terence Hayes. Today we're talking to Hollis Robbins, former director of the Center for Africana Studies at the Krieger School of Arts and Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. As a fellow at the center this year, Hollis is working on the first book-length examination of the African-American sonnet tradition. Welcome, Hollis. Thank you. This is a roughly 250-year-old tradition of African-American sonnet writing, and we often think of the sonnet via its European heritage, uh, via Shakespeare, via Petrarch. What distinguishes the African-American sonnet tradition from that European heritage, or is there a distinction? Well, that's exactly the the right way to pose the question, is that uh, in those two questions, what distinguishes it and is it distinguishable? And the answer is yes. (laughs) On the one hand, black sonnet writers have understood the entirety of the tradition, have understood the origins in a kind of platonic ideal of love rising pure and unfettered from the body, and you think of the word fettered, black poets understood that fettering, bondage, imprisonment was central to this form and obviously central to the African-American experience um, under slavery. So the African-American sonnet tradition both emerges out of the origins of the sonnet in Italy in that platonic tradition of metaphysical ideal love and changes it and transforms it and suggests, wait a second, what does it mean when fetters aren't metaphorical? What does it mean that slavery to love isn't metaphorical if you're slave to an actual owner, to an actual slave system? So the African-American sonnet tradition has to be understood in the context of or emerging out of that tradition. But the black sonnet writers that I've been looking for and have been discovering, I've discovered just scores of of hundreds of actually really extraordinary sonnets um, in my research, have transformed the tradition so that its Italian practitioners um, and its Renaissance practitioners, I think, would be both shocked and impressed um, with the work of poets like Terence Hayes and Natasha Trethewey. Part of your argument is that these sonnets appear especially during times of racial violence and yes. instances of racial violence. So talk to us a little bit about the specific times that you're investigating and how do you bolster that argument? Why do they occur during these particular times? There's two kinds of ways that they emerge. One is sonnets in response to lynching. Um, primarily appearing in the pages of W.B.E. Du Bois' The Crisis, which was a journal founded in uh, 1910 specifically to address the crisis of lynching. They respond primarily out of the Miltonic sonnet tradition. Um, So, well, let me back up for a second. So the most well-known English sonnet writer was, of course, Shakespeare, who changed the sonnet format from a Petrarchan or Italian version to a sonnet that ends in a couplet. The last two lines of the of the 14-line sonnet sum up the point of the poem in both the Petrarchan and the, and the Shakespearean form. 
again, deal with primarily questions of transcendence and love. But Milton, in the 17th century, returned to the Petrarchan form to use it as a form of political protest, to say, basically, something is wrong here, and I protest, and my protest is going to take this form of outrage. What we see in sonnets like Claude McKay's famous If We Must Die sonnet from uh, 1919, we see him drawing on this outrage modeled by Milton to say, no. And actually, could we read this as probably a sonnet that most people know well, If We Must Die? It was published in response to to the red summer of 1919, a time of just incredible race violence around the country. If We Must Die. If we must die, let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain, that even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave, like men will face the murderous cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. So the opening phrase of this sonnet actually evokes the famous St. Crispin's Day speech of Henry V, uh, if we are marked to die, we are now to do our country loss and if to live. It also alludes to uh, Rupert Brooks' The Soldier from 1915, a World War I poem that opens, if I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. So you see McKay drawing on this English tradition and saying, this is the tradition. I want us to see that the horrible race violence that's being done in America should provoke as much outrage as any historical battle, war, massacre that has ever occurred. And we need this kind of outrage. But why the sonnet in particular? What is it about the form of the sonnet that assists with political protests? Is there anything in particular? The sonnet has always been, it's structured around an argument. It's the only poetic form which structurally says, I am going to have two points to make here. It's not the lyric eye that is very sure of itself. There's 14 lines. There's the octet, the first eight lines, which generally traditionally set out a problem. You know, here's my crisis. Here's my situation. This is the thing I'm dealing with. Then there's a a volta or turn. And the last six lines say, okay, this is how I'm going to deal with this. So if you think about the sonnet in the context of, again, Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk and his his famous invocation of double consciousness, you know, that African Americans are are always speaking with two minds, two voices at once, that the, the sonnet is double voicedness. I mean, it is double voicedness structured and has been structured that way all along. With the African American sonnet in particular, is this a distinct literary tradition? Are there particular characteristics to the African American sonnet as distinct from those that come from a more European heritage? There's. I was. I was going to ask you if you would read a read one if you would like. I'll um, give it a I was chance. thinking of um, one of the traditions from the Italian tradition. Um, is I was thinking of Dante Alighieri's sonnet. I won't read the whole thing. Um, My lady looks so gentle and so pure. So this is a poem, a sonnet from twelve. 90, which is really the kind of fair maiden sonnet. 
sonnet, right? The idea in the octet is, you know, this is my fair lady. She looks so gentle and so pure. Um, she's so pleasant, and I can't touch her. So the Jamaican poet Edward Baugh writes a version of it, well, not a version of it, a response to it. Um, there's a brown girl in the ring. When I speak of this woman, I do not mean to indicate the muse or abstract queen, but to record the brown fact of her being, the undiluted blackness of her hair, and that I lightly kissed her knee, and how her feet were shy before my stare. It may be that I praise her memory here because she is indeed but allegory of meanings greater than herself or me, of which I am instinctively aware. But may such meanings never be a care for that fine head, and may my glory be that blood and brain responded well to slim, shy feet and smoothest knees and most black hair. Fantastic. So what you see this poem doing, what you see uh, Baud doing is it begins with a couplet. It doesn't end with a couplet. And it begins with a sestet followed by an octet. So he's literally turning this tradition of a fair maiden on its head. He's like, no, I'm, my lady's brown, and she's right here. She's not on a pedestal. So to understand the point of the poem is understanding it in this tradition and seeing how Boz is saying, no, this, this is the way the tradition works for me. So it's parodic to an extent. Parodic and yet, well, what Henry Louis Gates Jr. would call, he's signifying on it. He's taking this tradition and saying, this is how the tradition is working for me. So the, the sort of long tradition that Gates has, uh, uh, has identified in The Signifying Monkey of black writers signifying on traditions, transforming it, understanding it. Parody is part of that, but it's productive as well and newly productive. So with that in mind, what do you think of um, Kenneth Warren's question about would there have been an African-American literature per se as such without Jim Crow? I'm so glad you asked me this question. I'm, I'm grappling with, with Warren right now. Warren situates what he says what was African-American literature, as you say, in the Jim Crow era, so starting post-Civil War to uh, the civil rights movement. And he's saying this is the point of time in which African-American writers and critics were saying that African-American literature is a literature apart in response to mainstream white or universal, uh, universal uh, white European literature. And Warren's critique emerges out of concerns by Du Bois, by others, that African-American literature is both indexical and instrumental, by which I mean indexical, it is an index of African-American progress, like and, and you see this concern in the criticism where poets and critics are saying that poetry and literature demonstrates education, demonstrates that African-American writers can hold their own with anybody else, and instrumental as a way then to demonstrate to others there's equality here. And this is uh, these two bases, are, uh, Warren argues, are kind of a, a ridiculous foundation for the basis of a literature, that literature should have, it, should have its own concerns and does, in fact, have its own concerns. How I'm using or how I'm drawing on Warren is to say that there was about a 50-year period between 1922 and the publication of the first anthology of African-American poetry by James Weldon Johnson, the book of American Negro Poetry. And 1967, the Fisk Writers Conference, 
uh, where Mir Miri Baraka basically said, no more sonnets, we're done. And in that 50 year period, the sonnet had a kind of strange relationship to African-American literature and to literature in general. You could see the sonnet as representing those moments of the African-American poetry canon that were never completely African-American because of this heritage. So I would argue, or I am arguing, that the African-American sonnet tradition is both evidence for Warren's claim that those aspects of African-American literature that only exist in opposition to broader literary concerns can't include the sonnet, and that the thread of the African-American sonnet suggests that there always was a tradition that was concerned with literature and broader questions of the universal experience of the African-American and the particular experience of the African-American, both of those concerns registered in this double-foisted form, the sonnet. Why is this the first book-length study on the African-American sonnet? Why, why have they been largely unnoticed to uh, date? I ask myself this all the time. I, I go through these, these old newspapers and I find these fantastic sonnets. The other day I was going through some papers, I think uh, The Messenger or maybe it was Opportunity from the 1920s or The New York Age. And it's around the time when King Tut was discovered. And so, you know, the newspapers are filled with King Tut and the black newspapers are filled with questions of was King Tut a Negro. And of course, of course he was black. And clearly this wasn't getting across to white America. And so I kept finding these, these songs and poems and a sonnet, two or three sonnets to King Tut, uh, which are hilarious. I kept thinking, why, why, why are these, why am I discovering this? Why, why are these not in every poetry anthology? They're, they're rich, they're interesting. And I think it is primarily because of Baraka, Amiri Baraka, and primarily because of the black arts movement, African-American studies and African-American literature has concerned itself with poetic forms and literary forms that are either organically African-American, the blues tradition, the spiritual tradition, gospel, or from Africa, and that there has always been a suspicion of this form with its European origins. So these poems just don't make the cut. But there's been a, a recent resurgence of this form, and new sonnet forms are emerging. Could you talk about those? It's been delightful to me. I started this project 10 years ago now, um, in 2008, and I thought, well, I'll just end this with Marilyn Nelson, the great writer of sonnets in 2005, or with Rena Dove, who won the Pulitzer for her poetry, which is, she's a great sonnet writer. Little did I know that Terence Hayes would be writing sonnets, that um, Natasha Trethewey would be writing sonnets, that John Murillo, that Tracy K. Smith, that all of the great black poets writing now would be embracing the sonnet. I had, I had no idea. And it's really exciting for me to say that what I had seen as essential to the black poetic project is in fact being demonstrated. I don't know why now. I like to think that it's just the magic of the sonnet speaking in these extraordinary ways. So I'm, I'm just delighted. So how about giving us another sonnet as we conclude? Well, I'll read one by Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, Lovely Love, which is also like uh, Edward Baugh's sonnet, engaging with the tradition of platonic love. And she's uh, this lovely love is far from platonic. Lovely love, let it be alleys, 
Let it be a hall whose janitor javelins epithet and thought to cheapen hyacinth darkness that we sought and played, we found, wrought, make the petals fall. Let it be stairways and splintery box where you have thrown me, scraped me with your kiss, have honed me, have released me after this cavern kindness, smiled away our shocks. This is the birthright of our lovely love, in swaddling clothes, not like that other one, nor lit by any fondling star above, nor found by any wise men either. Run, people are coming. They must not catch us here, definitionless in this strict atmosphere. Gwendolyn Brooks, 1960. Lovely. Thank you, Hollis Robbins, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center. 